What's up, everybody? Welcome to Discussions with Dave. Today, we've got Dan Rotnum. If you remember episode two, he's my Buddhist buddy. We're going to talk to him again some more about some stuff that I feel got left out of the last little conversation we had. No lag this time, so that'll be cool. Without further ado, here's Dan. I've kind of been distracted all day arguing on Facebook, same as yesterday, so I'm I kind of forget a lot of the stuff I asked you. Hopefully it'll come to me as we go along. This time I want to talk about like some of the conflicts between Buddhism and Taoism. One of the first ones that I can see is the Eightfold Path talks about right this and you need to have right concentration and right motivation and all that. But in Taoism, right and wrong is a fluid thing that changes based on the nature of whatever you're talking about. So what's right for one person might not necessarily be right for another person. Is that, am I reading that correctly? So in the Eightfold Path, right, for example, right in view refers to the middle way. So it's not right in terms of an absolute moral compass that says this is right and this is wrong. It's right as in the middle between any extremism. So in right view, we're taking a path between fatalism and nihilism and materialism and hedonism, right? So it's it's about holding the center. So like it, just, just to expand on that real quick, like in terms of right meditation, it's kind of saying, practicing obviously with the right view and with all of these other things, because they're all interrelated. It's not a chain, right? They all feed on each other, mm-hmm. but also, talking about how you don't want to meditate to the point of asceticism where you're eating one grain of rice a day and your skin and bones and you're not taking care of yourself. And you also don't want to do so little meditation that you aren't actually developing any skills and wisdom and concentration. All right. So I just, I'm pretty sure that what you said was basically what I already thought and the conflict was arising because I was misunderstanding what right meant. So I guess there's no problem there. Another thing that comes to mind now that I'm thinking about it, though, is the concept of right mindfulness versus the concept of Wu Wei, uh, where Wu Wei is basically no mindfulness. You you try and keep yourself empty and move just uh, according to, to go with the flow, I guess. Whereas right mindfulness is saying you want to be completely mindful of all things around you and what you're doing at all time. Basically, the two concepts seem opposite of each other. Uh, so I, I have trouble figuring out how like how Wu Wei could is incorporated into Zen Buddhism. Yeah, this is an interesting question. Kind of starting at the back end and working the opposite direction. The the first thing to say about that though is that Wu Wei is a description of sage like behavior. Right. So that's that's the natural path where we're taking the path that spontaneously arises according to conditions seen through harmony with nature. Right. Yeah. Is a general description of way. Ultimately, that is exactly what enlightened behavior is. The difference then is the practices around discovering way and and in Taoism and discovering spontaneous Buddha-like behavior in Buddhism. Um, now, I personally never got 
too far into religious Taoism, which incorporates a lot of the exoteric, esoteric practices that people would engage in to develop this faculty, right? I, I viewed it more as more of as a philosophy, so I'm not totally familiar in how a Taoist would truly practice that. But in Buddhism, the and Zen in particular, the the practice is known as concentration meditation. And there is a component of it that is mindfulness, where you uh, create a situation where you occupy your mind. You do not allow your mind to separate from an object of contemplation. It's mindfulness. Now, the the follow-on there is that's not the goal. That's the starting point. It's the tool that we use to still the mind. So meditation actually comes after that when you release the contraction around the intense single-pointed concentration and maintain that deep faculty for being present without that single point of locus and without that intense concentration. Um, one of the analogies that I like to use for it is if you're looking at a pond, right? And it's raining. Well, each time a raindrop hits the pond, it's like, it kind of messes it up, right? It distorts the image. And this is our daily life. This is, I've got this going on, that going on. I've got to be here. I got to be there. I'm checking my phone. I'm getting in Facebook arguments. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm, I'm pulled all these different directions, right? And then concentration is like taking a big rock and just chucking it into the middle of the pond. And then these big ripples are going to kind of swallow up all the little stuff. And that's your concentration practice. You're getting one, one point that's rippling out, right? So you're holding this concentration. And then as that concentration settles and goes through the pond, eventually those, even those ripples dissipate. And then you're in that stillness, that reflective awareness. Um, and that's your Zen mind. All right. I just want to make sure I understood that correctly. So basically, mindfulness isn't the state you're supposed to remain existing in. It's more, it's there to clear the distractions so that you can be in, in that natural, spontaneous state without something pulling you around. Is that right? Correct. All right. Yeah. And um, that's the difference between mindfulness and meditation, concentration and meditation. All right. And then also just for clarification, the the state of emptiness that people are attempting to reach with meditation, that state of emptiness isn't enlightenment itself, right? That's that state is called Zen, correct? Ooh. This is where this is where we have to go back to the the four tenets of Zen, right? So one of them is that we can't rely on words. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's also a principle in, in Taoism too, is that the, the words aren't actually the things themselves. The words are just representations of it. And so people can shift the words to mean different things, but they wouldn't actually represent the underlying thing itself. Right. So as we launch into this conversation, we just want to have that out there because no matter what I say, it's not going to be an accurate representation. Right. So the emptiness and the, the experience of sunyata or a non-dual realization through a meditative state is simply a state of mind. Enlightenment, uh, if we wanted to try and define it is a transformational experience of realization that shows that we do not have a permanent self. So enlightenment is kind of like a process. There's an initial kind of 
awakening experience. And sometimes it happens with non-dual realization and sometimes they're totally separate. So I'd had non-dual realizations completely separate and apart from realizing that this is it and all of those, there's nothing to attain and there's no realization to be had and all of these things that are usually associated with awakening. So, you know, that non-dual state of or experiencing emptiness, also known as shunyata, again, it does not equate to enlightenment. Shunyata, though, is also deeply misunderstood in general. And, you know, one of the first things to understand about it is that it's a deconstructive concept used to lead people through to a realization that our sensory perception and the way that we perceive ourselves in the world is deeply inaccurate. And within this emptiness, at least in Zen Buddhism, within this emptiness, when we when we take that to its natural conclusion, we realize Zen mind. And Zen mind is empty because it no longer relies on that misperceived sense of reality. And with that state, we enter into what can be known as pure selfless awareness or, or clear, deep mind. And it's kind of a non-discriminating, choiceless awareness where things just are exactly as they are without any labels attached to them and understanding that they're deeply connected to the rest of the world and we generally misperceive them. So I don't know if I kind of got off on a tangent there, but hopefully that sort of answered the question. <laughs> uh, yeah, it definitely did. And it and it raised a lot of other interesting thoughts. One of the the main points of that question, the reason I brought it up, it's because I spend a lot of time in different um, philosophical groups, religious discussion groups, things like that. And one of the biggest misperceptions I see people make about Zen Buddhism is that Zen Buddhism is working to achieve a state, that constant state of emptiness. And I also often see um, enlightenment as conflated, or misconflated with that state of emptiness and I just wanted to clear up the confusion there because I have a hard time convincing people that the state of emptiness what was it called again shunyata shunyata okay uh, I see a lot of people saying enlightenment is that state of emptiness and I I just know from talking to you and other people that that's not the case that enlightenment uh, like you said it can't be put into words it it can't uh, I can't even say for sure if I've ever heard the exact same description of it come from two different people because like you said it transcends words and it can't really be communicated but it, it just so often I see it conflated as that state of emptiness that I wanted to clear up the confusion there yeah and one of the things that um there, it's a teaching aid and I forget where it came from it might have come from one of the Korean Zen masters uh, it could be older than that too. I'm not sure. It's it's this uh, idea of a, a circle, right? So when we start at zero, we think that I am a permanent unchanging entity. Okay. Say we get then to 90 degrees. At 90 degrees, we're like, wait a minute. Maybe that's not really true. I'm having an intellectual understanding that there's more to existence than what I'm experiencing through my senses, but I don't know what that is. 
And then we have a non-dual realization and we understand what non-self is and we get, we start to get emptiness and we've experienced some form of emptiness. And this is where most people kind of stop their journey because it's very powerful. They're like, oh, I've realized non-self. Nah, self is an illusion. Self doesn't exist. And they start making all of these kind of concepts and they, and, and then they're at this 180 degree mark, which is an important step in the spiritual path. And then at around the 270 mark, you're like, well, I've realized non-self. I've realized emptiness. I've had a meditative experience of that. But uh, when my wife yells at me, I still turn into an asshole. So obviously I'm not enlightened, right? <laughs> Something's wrong. You know, when somebody says something on Facebook, I get up in arms about it. And I engage in this huge personal attack on this person who I don't even know, having a discussion in a forum where we can't communicate clearly anyway. But yeah, I have know, a really I'm, supposed, I'm supposed to understand this, right? So then you're at 270. You're starting to have doubt about like, is that it? That can't be it. Like there's, there's something else there. Then you get back to the top of the circle. So this is 360. You end up exactly where you started. You know, one of, one of my favorite sayings is before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Right? That's the exact <laughs> same thing. Yeah. But your perspective has undergone a subtle shift. And then you're bringing that, that ego narrative that narrative of who you are as a person in line with informed by what you know about the deeper truth, this, this absolute state of pure selfless awareness. And it's that marriage of what would be the mana vijnana and the alaya vijnana, if you use the yoga terms, which is basically consciousness as perceived through the organ of mind and consciousness that is deeper than that the one that knows that ego is just kind of a part of a self-narrative and when you marry those together and you create this sensation of you know what we call clear deep heart mind and then you start experiencing these transformations you start watching your habitual reactions come up and knowing that you don't have to act that way anymore that's when you start getting it that's when you can start the real work and that's when you know what the average person would call enlightenment would kind of kick in but even just using the word enlightenment after that stage is kind of funny because it doesn't really work like there is well just to, there is i no think i know where you're going <laughs> one of the ways i've always explained it to people is enlightenment is understanding that you'll you'll never understand and you'll always be asking questions and basically it's coming to peace with the fact that it's not your place to know, but it's still your job to try to. Uh, is that close to what you were thinking? To an extent, around like certain questions, yeah. You know, if it comes to anything, you know, what happens after we die? Yeah. I don't know. No. Who, who can answer that? You know? Sure, there's things that you could say about certain studies, about near-death experiences and all that stuff, but that's a construct of mind just like anything else. Mm -hmm. As soon as they come back and they talk about it through words, it's a, it's not a, it's not what it was. Um, so we never really know anything super mystical, you know, so Zen is about the super mundane. It's, it's seeing what's here in front of us right here, right now, as clearly as possible. Um, and, and being okay with the fact that we're very limited. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was getting at is that, um, you, you make, you end up having to make, make peace with the fact that you're pretty much just a grain of sand on an infinitely large beach and you're never you're never going to be big enough to change the world we've written history in the way 
where there's these big hero characters that moved mountains and changed the world. But really behind all of those figures that we've put onto movements, there were thousands, millions of other people that actually made what that person did possible. And then that person is just a symbol that we've applied to that movement. There is no such thing as a person who changes the world. Only uh, a world that changes people, I guess. It's so hard to put into words. Okay, so to an extent, you know, we might be just a grain of sand in the river Ganges, you know, to get mm-hmm. a little bit more traditional. But at the same time, we are the entire river, right? So at the ultimate level, there's no real separation between forms of existence. And so that deep interconnection and interpenetration and interdependency between all life is very real and it is very true. And that's how we as individuals can impact the world. So by engaging the world with wisdom and compassion and impacting others with wisdom and compassion so that they can see that there's a better way to live, that there's a, there's a different way to do things and not settling for things exactly as they are, right? Then we can, we can build change. So it's, it's, Zen is not fatalistic. It's not saying that we have no power and authority. It's a deep recognition that nothing that we do is in a vacuum. I get what you're saying. I think there might have been some miscommunication in what I meant. And it comes down to what you said is that me as an individual, separate separate entity that doesn't have any effect on the world around me, that me doesn't actually exist. Everything I do is interwoven into everything else. So me by myself, yes, my I, I will have ripple effects that move out. But me as an individual, uh, I, it, it just doesn't exist. So that's why... That's why me as an individual is ultimately, it can't do anything. It's powerless. It doesn't actually exist. And that's, uh, I'm trying to think of a way to contextualize this. I have a friend that says that I will never make a difference no matter what I do. And in a sense, he's right. Me, Dave, as an individual probably won't. But the things I do, because they're interconnected to everything else, the things I do can make a big difference if you take into account the things I do affecting two people next to me and then the two people next to me affecting two people next to them and it rippling out like that. Uh, Yes, every person does eventually have a a huge effect when you take into account the effects that their effects have and the effects of those moving on down the line. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and we just have to be careful to say that, you know, we as individuals don't exist because there is a very real part of us that is acting and behaving the way we do because of the views that we hold based on our pasts. Mm-hmm. So despite the fact that there is no permanent unchanging self, that doesn't mean that we aren't independently functioning organisms right so it's this very very tricky balance when we're communicating these concepts to to recognize that individuals are individuals right emptiness does not negate the fact like when you ask me the question who am i and i'm going to answer you in a zen context the only answer is not knowing like like what the question doesn't even make sense right 
but conventionally I'm still very much here. I have a story. I have a past. I have a life. I have, you know, there is still this thing which is represented by the idea of I am, which is a composite being who exists and interfaces with reality relatively. Right. So it's important, I think, to not lose sight of that when we're having these kinds of discussions, because ultimately part of your story and part of where you are, where you are, and part of how you got there and part of how you're impacting people has to come from the recognition of everything that you've done in your life. Otherwise we're acting ignorantly. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. I think the best way to, to sort of restate that from my experience, you've probably gathered this before, but I've kind of done a lot of psychedelic drugs in my past. One time I ate way more mushrooms than a person should. And it led to me experiencing something they call ego dissolution, where mm -hmm. the whole time I was tripping, the only thing I could think of, think was, I am just a guy. Dave doesn't exist. Everyone else is just a guy too. And we're all just guys. Why do we put these names on ourselves? And basically what, what that meant is that Dave, the character that everyone else sees, is just that. It's a character that I've chosen to play based on my subjective likes and dislikes and fears. And all of, all of that goes in to build this character called Dave that I then use to interact with society. But Dave is a construct of my mind in reality. Although, yes, it does exist. Me, Dave, does exist. But at the same time, it's not actually my true inner self. That's just a character that my true inner self uses to interact with the rest of the world. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And the most beautiful thing about it is you can, once you know that and practice, you can choose how you manifest. That's exactly what I was going to say that I, from having that realization, I learned that I can take Dave, separate him from myself, analyze that character objectively and then choose the parts of it that I like and dislike and rearrange them into something that I like more. So instead of myself, I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, I can't change that. It's just who I am. <laughs> Once you have that realization that who I am is something that you can separate out objectively and you get to pick and choose and build the pieces of it as you like, it, it turns self into a malleable concept that you you can you can make a better person and nothing that you do is out of your power once you have that realization yeah um that seems like a that's good why we go back to Ota Depot. <laughs> yep uh yeah that's that's why i love that that um i listen to that podcast all the time the Ota Depot. Yeah. i am this light uh, yeah. it, it's um it's really grounding it helps put things into perspective it's good stuff yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. It's um that seems like a good place to take a break while I go get some water and think about what to ask you next. All right. Sounds good. While you're doing that, I will also um do a quick check on on the house. <laughs> Make sure everything's still okay. All right. So let's say um ten minutes. Yeah, that'll be good. All right. All right, guys, I hope you're enjoying the first half of the podcast. Uh, just a quick little remark just to kind of save my image some. When I said I was in a, a Facebook argument, I wasn't in an actual like argument with 
any animosity in it. In reality, what I meant was I'm in like a lot of different philosophy groups and I was having a philosophical debate. It was a friendly discussion. Uh, I get into them all the time. It wasn't any bad blood there I, before I make myself look like a troll or someone who's easily triggered. All right, so today for the intermission, the song we have is, it's on an album by a guy called Black Alicious, but the song itself is actually by a contributing guest artist named Saul Williams. Um, so this is release part two by Saul Williams off Black Alicious's album Blazing Arrow. In a breathlessness, out of restlessness, by the time I caught up to freedom, I was out of breath. Grandma asked me what I'm running for. Ask some out for the same thing the sun is sunning for, what mother's birth are youngins for, and some say Jesus coming for. For all I know, the earth is spinning slow. Sun's at half mass, cause masses ain't a glow. On bended knee, prostrate before an altered tree. I've made the forest suit me. Tables and chairs, papers and prayers, matter for a spirit, a metal ladder, a wooden cross, a plastic bottle of water, a mandala encased in glass, a spirit encased in flesh, sound from shaped hollows, the thickest of mucus released from heightened passion, a man that cries in his sleep, a truth that has gone out of fashion, a mode of expression, a paint splattered wall, a carton of cigarettes, a bouquet of corpses, a dying forest, a nurtured garden, a privatized prison, a Candle with a broken wick, a puddle that reflects the sun, a piece of paper with my name on it. I'm surrounded, I surrender all, all that I am, I have been. All I have been has been a long time coming, I am becoming all that I am. The spittle that surrounds the mouthpiece of the flute, unheard yet felt, a gathered wetness, a quiet moisture, sound trapped in a bubble, released into wind. Wind fellows and land merchants, we are history's detergent, water soluble light particles, articles of of cleansing breath, articles amending death. These words are not tools of communication. They are shards of metal dropped from eight-story windows. There are waterfalls and gas leaks, aged thoughts rolled in tobacco leaf. The tools of a trade, barters barred, barred of barters, catchphrases and misunderstandings. But they are not what I feel when I am alone, surrounded by everything and nothing. And there isn't a word, a phrase to be caught, a verse to be recited, a mantra to fill my being in those moments. I am a blankness, the contained center of an O, the pyramidic containment of an A. I stand in the middle of all that I have learned, all that I have memorized, all that I have known by heart, unable to reach any of it. There is no sadness, there is no bliss, it is a forgotten memory, a memorable escape route that only is found by not looking. There, in the spine of the dictionary, the words are worthless. They are a mere weight pressing against my thoughtlessness. But then, who else can speak of thoughtlessness with such confidence? Who else has learned to sling these ancient ideas like dead rats held by their tails so as not to infect this newly oiled skin? I can think of nothing heavier than an airplane. I can think of no greater conglomerate of steel and metal. I can think of nothing less likely to fly. There are no wings more weighted. I, too, have felt a heaviness, the stare of a man. 
land guessing at my being yes i am homeless a homeless man making offerings to the after future sculpting rubber tree forests out of worn tires and shoe soles a nation unified in exhale a cloud of smoke a native pipe ceremony all the gathered cigarette butts piled in heaps snow covered mountains lipstick smeared and shriveled offerings to an afterworld tattoo guns and plastic wrappers broken zippers and dead-eyed dolls it's all overwhelming me oak and elming me i have seeded a forest of myself little books from tall trees it matters not what this paper be made of give me notebooks made of human flesh dried on steel hooks and nooses make uses of use uses of us it's all overwhelming me oak and elming me i've seeded a forest of myself little books from tall trees on bended knee prostrate before an altar tree i've made the forest suit me tables and chairs papers and prayers matter verse spirit through meditation i program my heart to be break beats and hum bass lines on exhalation Again, that was Release Part 2 by Saul Williams off Black Alicious's album, Blazing Arrow. Uh, really, it's part of a three-part song, but that whole track is like 15 minutes long, and I didn't want to make y'all sit through that when you're already sitting through an hour-long podcast. But I love the, the meditative uh, connotations of that little piece, and it's just so poetic. Uh, I, re- I really love that song. So now back to the show. Again, I'm talking to my Buddhist buddy, Dan Rottenham. So another thing I wanted to talk about just so I could have this stuff recorded in my podcast is um, the precepts. I guess in in your school of Buddhism, there's 11. In other schools, there's 10. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on those some? Uh, sure. Um, so I guess there's a lot to go on there. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I was, ho- I was assuming this would probably eat up the whole second half, but it's, it's good material. I like the thing I like about the precepts is they act as a good general guideline for the things you do and say, basically what I'm saying is generally if something you're doing or saying is out of line with one of those precepts chances are it's not going to work out well for you to do that thing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And um, before we, I guess we kind of dig into them, the, the the important thing to remember with these precepts is they're not like the Ten Commandments. They're not absolutes. They're not, um, if you do these, you're an eternally damned sinner type of a thing. It's like, ah, crap. Well, at least I get to try again, right? which is one of the things that I like about Zen and how it places so much personal responsibility on us, you know, like be, be aware of what you're doing and take ownership of what you're doing. And when you really do that, it's awfully hard to be an asshole. Yeah. You know, and especially if you don't want to be, you know, we can all make ourselves be whatever we want to be as we were talking about before. I mean, you can choose to apply the same skills, uh, the same realizations to becoming an absolutely terrible person. And we have, countless cases of that you know and that happens all the time but that's not really the point and that's kind of where these precepts come in with this whole this whole idea that we're going to 
reconstruct ourselves according to a a kind of a natural a lot of these are natural law you know like mm-hmm. they just kind of work out like you were saying if you do something outside of the precepts odds are things aren't going to go that well for you you know and maybe it takes a while to catch up to you maybe it never does who knows but generally speaking you're going to create a better environment around you full of loving caring people the more you kind of live this way and a lot of times traditionally they're presented in in negatives you know like no killing no stealing that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and one of the things that hollow bones uh, does is it places them in the affirmative and it's kind of like when you teach anybody really it's much better to give them something to do than just tell them something they can't do and that's kind of the perspective that we apply to these precepts is let's think about what we can do instead of limiting ourselves according to all these things that we can't do does that make sense yeah okay so um they kind of group a little bit into sections and you know one of the first ones is to affirm life and affirming life goes beyond just no killing it's also that we're going to respect and show compassion toward all life and that means all life and that means all matter really sentient and insentient beings um take care of our stuff we take care of the environment we we take care of animals and plants and obviously each other and other humans um you know we we respect life we understand it as something that's pretty fantastic to even be occurring in the first place and so when we're behaving we want to make sure that whatever we're doing is is bringing an affirmation to that life and is not destructive and isn't causing suffering or harm or anything like that and that kind of is the big one but it also really encompasses all of them (laughs) right Mm -hmm. Uh, as with most buddhist teachings when you get one part of it you kind of get the rest of it so if you really affirm life then you're going to act generously you know you're going to be open-handed you're you're going to only have things that are freely given to you and that includes affection right you're not going to try and coerce people into loving you or or taking care of you you know you're you're going to remember that anytime that we really like try and hold on to something that's where we create a lot of strife and suffering you know whether it's national borders or resources or whatever like the more attached we are to things the more we try not to be generous the more pain and suffering we bring into our lives and the less good we can create in the world um so we act generously i'm i was planning on just keeping going so if you want to jump in on anything or whatever Uh, just yeah i just wanted to make a few just minor comments here that popped in the mind while you were talking like we said these are more like guidelines chances are you're going to run afoul of them at some point accidentally or not accidentally just through your natural course of actions you're probably never going to be able to stick to these 100 percent. and that doesn't necessarily mean you're an awful person and you're irredeemable and it's all done you might as well give up uh, it's just human nature that we're flawed and we're never going to be able to adhere to these 100%. One thing I will say, uh, you, you mentioned the 10 commandments. One of my biggest beefs with the Abrahamic religions is I feel like over time people have misinterpreted and distorted certain things to the point that they become absolute 
orders uh, set in stone that are concrete where I think originally if there is a God I'm not going to say whether or not there is one because the, it's impossible to and it's it becomes a pointless debate whether or not there is one once you analyze it pretty deeply but if there is a God I don't think it intended those things to be absolutes I don't think it ever meant that we are that any of us are eternally damned I think the Ten Commandments were intended to be guidelines similar to these precepts and if you look at the Ten Commandments the precepts are kind of encapsulated in them um, mm -hmm. and they 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 are they're essentially almost the same doctrine as long as you keep in mind that they're not absolutes and you will you won't be able to adhere to them perfectly they kind of become very similar doctrines uh, is that right or make does that make sense i guess yeah, I say. yeah. yeah that that makes sense and um you know there there's some there's some that don't quite match up but that's not really here nor there the uh, the general crux of it is the same and that's the that's when you're looking at teachings versus culture around the teachings mm -hmm. right so i think regardless of what you and I believe to be the validity of what you're saying, the vast majority of people don't treat them that way. And so in essence, functionally, if we're, if we're speaking to somebody who follows those faiths and they believe them in that way, um, you know, they're. Yeah. And, but you know, yeah, I way. get what you're saying. Um, and they do because of the way they're used become different doctrines. But like I said, I, I and this is, all personal opinion I am of the opinion that the people that are using them differently like you said that that's not a problem with the doctrine itself it's a problem with how the people using it are interpreting it and so then the difference doesn't actually arise in the doctrine it arises in the culture around it like you said yep no disagreement there all right all right. Um, that's all I really wanted to say. Just some commentary. Uh, if there is anything else I want to say, I'll, I'll find a good point to bust in and then, uh, but yeah, just for now, just go through the rest. We have a, a firm life act generously and then. Yeah. And then the next one's to be loving. Right. So, um, this really kind of comes into sexuality and the idea that we have to be responsible in our sexual relationships not to misuse sex or take advantage of other human beings and, or to act on um, impulsive lust. It's it's the idea that sex is sacred, love is sacred, and we want to treat it that way. And um, it's amazing how transformative sex and love can be when we really decide to elevate it to that place and, and say to ourselves, like, you know, yeah, I can watch adult films and pleasure myself sure i can do that i'm not gonna go to ap double hockey six for it but does that detract from the way that i view my personal relationships does that change how i treat women does that um change how i enjoy sexual relationships does that mean that i am performing more acts outside of love right and, and that becomes really important. So then, and again, this is all personal balance. It's how does it affect your life and where is its positivity and negativity? Are you conscious and loving in all of those relationships? That's the big thing. And, and are you discerning the difference between love and lust? Are you respectful of other people's feelings and sensations and 
and where they are in their relationship with you. Because a lot of times we aren't. And sex is one of the things that creates some of the most suffering in the world, uh, simply because we allow our physical bodies to take over as opposed to using our, our conscious compassion to make good choices with it. So those are kind of the first three that go together. And then we get into a second section here, which I'll, I'll kind of say together because they, they go to together real nice, which is to manifest truth, respect clarity, and honor silence. And these are all kind of ways in how we interact and communicate with ourselves and with other people. Obviously, we want to honor honesty and truth. That doesn't mean that we always have to say the truth. You know, we can be quiet. We can respect or we can honor silence. Did you pick up that ring? Does that matter? Uh, it'll be fine. Yeah. So we can honor silence. We can determine that silence is a good course of action while we reflect, while we determine how to proceed and what to say. It also means that we don't necessarily have to engage in gossip and frivolous conversation. You know, everything that we say, every every word that gets out there can't be taken back. Oh my gosh. You know. <laughs> uh, it'll be all right. You know, th those kinds of things. Um, help me lose my mind. Cause me to lose my train of focus there for a second. We were honoring silence, right? So, yeah. you know, you can also say, you know, not gossiping, uh, not engaging for this conversation, understanding that our words are extremely important and that they need to be not necessarily guarded, but used with consideration. And to that end, we want to speak with integrity. We want to line up our value system, the words we use. Um, we want to make sure that we're clearly reflecting our emotional state, that we are being factually accurate as much as possible. You know, we're not deliberately misleading. Um, and also that we're acting with clarity. Oh my gosh. How do I turn this off? So when we respect this clarity, this is, and this comes down to like intoxicants too. Right. So when we abuse and misuse intoxicants, you know, how can we really stay engaged in the present moment and be totally true to what's going on and who we are and in touch with our pure selfless awareness? Um, we spend all of this time meditating, developing this, this skill to be in a state of non-discriminating witnessing. And then we abuse intoxicants and effectively biologically undo everything that we've worked for. Right. So there's inconsistency there. Yeah. Um, it's in, like it's impossible to respect clarity when you've distorted your view and you can't see things clearly because of drugs. Right. Basically, <laughs> which of course then ties into truth and silence as well. So respecting clarity also means that you're taking a moment to, to drop down and to engage from a place of clarity. Right. So when you, when you're way up high on your emotional states, and you're really worked up, we often aren't seeing things clearly. We're often reacting according to our habitual patterns. So respecting clarity to me also means that we're going to drop and we're going to be mindful. And then we're going to honor silence. We're going to take a moment. We're going to manifest truth. And then as we do that, then we're going to decide that, you know what, we can celebrate others. We can give generously of myself. I can embody compassion. That's the next three which is to to celebrate others to be giving and to embody compassion and and celebrating others comes down to the, the idea that your success isn't my failure right so why do i need to separate myself from 
my neighbors and from my friends and from my family and from people through this coveting and envy and jealousy and these base emotions. There's no value there. Instead, like, wow, this person is can be raising up the world. This person has had success. Look to them. How can you learn from them? How can you uh, develop to them? Just, just take a moment to look at your thoughts and understand where you're coming from and why and, and realize that we're all connected. So good for them. You know, it's not a zero sum game. And, and again, going back to that, like when we can do that and we're no longer attached to this idea that other people's success is our failure, we start to be able to give more generously of ourselves. We're not so afraid. And we realize that if I am giving and I am showing wisdom and compassion and I'm building others up, that in turn is going to build me up. And we're going to create this symbiosis, this, this relationship where everyone is benefiting through this mutual giving and through this mutual investment in our communities and in each other. And as we affirm life and act generously and lovingly, and as we celebrate others and manifest truth and honor silence and respect clarity, and we give generously of ourselves, we are embodying compassion. This is where we say, you know what? With all of these other actions, I'm going to recognize and enlighten my greed, anger, and ignorance. I'm going to transform my negative emotions so that I can do these things. So I can be loving and, and not hurt people through my sexual misconduct so i can celebrate others so i can respect clarity and and honor silence and manifest truth and by doing all these things i'm going to embody compassion and as i embody compassion i'm changing my frame of mind and then i'm going to be able to have a deeper realization and as i have this deeper transformative realization in my meditative practice i can further manifest these precepts and then I create this cycle where my mind and body are unified and acting together to create this, this entire uplifting sensation and community around the practice. And as our community comes together and as we see the world as one giant unit, one interconnected and interdependent entity of life, connected consciousness, we, we have to take responsibility for it. When, when we make bad choices with the environment and we kill all the trees, that affects us and everybody in our communities. I just want to pop in right there. That's a mm -hmm. huge thing, I, a point I find myself having to make all the time is I see people basically mocking environmentalism and things like that. And what those people fail to understand is the point of protecting the environment isn't just for the sake of the environment. The point of protecting the environment is because it's part of protecting ourselves. Correct. Yeah. We are the environment. <laughs> yeah. We're not like people view us as separate from nature and mankind as somehow this boxed off separate en entity when really we're a part of the environment, which means if we don't, if we destroy the environment, we will destroy ourselves along with it. Uh, and that's the point of protecting the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and working towards a lifestyle that gives back to the earth, you know, something that you know, there are so many things that we can do in terms of, the businesses that we support and, it, and it, that's the thing too people have a very small view of what we can do what the individual is capable of you know but it's who do you choose to purchase your produce from what kind of produce do you choose to purchase each small step that we take in supporting 
businesses and agriculture that are sustainable and green and cruelty free and all these kind of things. And I don't want to get too hippie on it because you, you, it's not 100% possible to live that life all the time. You know, 80, 20 rule is kind of a good thing. You know, if you really want to get into it, that's great. And the more you can get into it, the better, but just recycle, don't litter. You know, there, there are little things that everyone can do. And if we all just do a little bit, and if we all just realize how connected we all are and how much a part of nature we are, well, then we're going to have this massive change and stewarding the earth and protecting our resources is just, it's something that we have to do as, as people who are awake to the reality of the fact that humans are not in any way, shape or form separate from the earth. And that, that, that is actually the, the one that hollow bones adds one that's not traditionally in the, the precepts. Um, and then the last one, Oh, go ahead. Sorry, which one was the one that the hollow bones adds? Steward the earth. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then the last one is to manifest this way. And and that just means that we are going to embody this practice. And this practice can be summed up in the three jewels, uh, which are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. But those things are kind of hard to describe, but we, we say it like this where the Buddha is the absolute purity of our awakened mind. Okay. Everything is internal to us. Everything's in reference to ourselves. There is no Buddha outside of ourselves. So when we, when we take refuge or we embrace the three jewels and we manifest this way, we're actually saying that I'm going to take refuge in the purity of my awakened mind. I'm going to take refuge in, and that means to hold, to hold to the highest degree and to live to the highest degree and to, to make that one of the most important things in my life. Then I'm going to live with wisdom and compassion, skillful means, which means I'm going to follow the Dharma. So there's the Buddha and the Dharma. And then also we're going to appreciate this never ending mystery of life, which is all of our brothers and sisters and beings and, and sentient life. And this is the song. And one of the things that hollow bones does as well, that I don't think most sects of Buddhism do is we view song in two terms, right? And so there's, the community around my practice like when i go to my zendo and i have my people that i practice with that's my local song but then i also have the universal song which is everybody everything everywhere anytime we create that division we're creating this false sense of in-group out-group and all these kind of things and zen is not about that and it's really important to remember that everyone is a part of your sangha everyone is a part of your group and we are all interconnected and, and interdependent. And so when that concept of self and other no longer drives how we view the world, again, all these precepts become easier. We, we act more generously. We affirm life. We care about the earth. We embody compassion. We, we don't steal anything. We don't um, put other people down, right? We, these things become very natural. So again, behavior leads to realization. Realization leads to improved behaviors and the cyclical process is how over time we enlighten ourselves and we begin to embody compassion and and replace habitual greed anger and ignorance with you know forbearance and patience and wisdom and generosity so that's how those precepts kind of bring the practice to life for us awesome stuff yeah just that pretty much fills up the whole second half just a little some things I wanted to say before we go, a lot of this stuff is like, I'm still learning it, but it's also realizations that I came 
to by basically doing the exact opposite. Uh, I, I've talked to you before and you've read a lot of what I wrote. I, I am a diagnosed sociopath. So I spent the majority of my life stealing, manipulating, abusing people. And those were my primary methods of getting what I want. And I've learned from doing that, that following these precepts is just a so much, it's a much, much, much better way to live your life. Because what I've learned is living that way, every time I hurt someone else, in the long run, I ended up hurting myself more for it. And so it's not, it's kind of paradoxical. The reason to not be selfish is because you get more for yourself when you're not selfish. Mm-hmm. So it, like selflessness is actually the most selfish thing you could do if you look at it that way. But at the same time, if you're doing it for selfish reasons, which a lot of times I am, it's still better than not doing it at all. And, and like I said, like these principles, if someone who doesn't believe in them listens to this and hears it, they're going to hear some like hippy dippy lovey dovey, sort of thing that they they it it would appear to them as harming themselves but i know just from personal experience from basically if you were to take the opposite of these precepts and make those your guiding philosophy that's how i lived most of my life and ultimately the one who hurt the most for it was me and it led to me living in abject misery completely alone and cut off from the world and so it's even though the principles are all about how you treat everyone around you and treating the world around you better, ultimately, the reason you're doing that is to because it benefits you in the long run. I don't know. Is that yeah, in line? So, so it's interesting because there's an entire sutra. Um, it's called the Diamond Sutra that basically challenges us to truly become selfless and the the key point in that differentiation is that selflessness does not mean that we don't engage in self-care right mm-hmm. so there are boundaries there are lines we we give but we don't give so much that we don't have anything to support ourselves just as an example that was another thing i was going to bring up is you see i have a, a one friend who's really guilty of this where he'll give more than what he has and then sit there when, once he runs out and has nothing for himself, he'll complain that everyone took everything he had and doesn't want to give back. And I could never get him to understand that he, he's doing that to himself by not caring for himself and only caring about other people. And the way he does it, it, it appears self it appears like he's being selfless from the outside, but if you really analyze it, it's actually extremely selfish because he's expecting all the stuff back. Right. And that's what the, the Bodhisattva past in the diamond suture basically says we have to, well, one, we have to take the middle path, right? So again, mm-hmm. returning into right action, right view, right thought, understanding that there is a middle path. Self-care is an important part of this. We still have to exist and live a life. And the Buddha, um, it, it's not well known, but he actually teaches a lot on, like right livelihood you have to make enough money to meet your um living needs or else how can you have a proper spiritual path for example right so like there it's a very holistic view towards all of these things and eventually over time it 
becomes less and less about getting stuff back and even less and less about doing anything for other people than it is just about that's that is what it is this is what life is you know and and even though it does make our lives better and we become you know to, to use a phrase that pops up a lot is we l get to live a life of true freedom and joy beyond comprehension you know it's pretty yeah. freaking sweet yeah. um but at the end of the day it's not because we're trying to live a life of freedom and joy it's just that's the natural result that comes of it yeah when you when you stop uh i think it's the eighth chapter of the Tao Te Ching, right uh, so the, the the penultimate sage is like water water benefits all things and battles with nothing and then it's like it lives in the places that most people wouldn't even consider right it yeah, humbles itself it, it, to the level it's, that it goes to the understand. lowest level or something i think is what the translation yeah. i have and says but well, i know what you're talking about yeah. and then and then it is, in, it is in this point that it becomes closest to the way right mm -hmm. so it's the exact encapsulated when when you just completely you don't completely let go of yourself and your self-care but you completely let go of the idea that you need anything more than you have you're already here how, how blessed are you to even just have life mm -hmm. and and that's again where it gets really dangerous because if you take that too far then all of a sudden you're accepting what is you turn into idiot compassion you aren't working towards change because oh things are exactly the way they are and they're perfect just the way they are but just because they're perfect the way they are doesn't mean that they don't need work right yeah so so it's kind of that again that really fine balance of, of that absolute truth with the relativistic reality of our situation right so um balance balance in all things yeah and that's an important distinction to make is a, a lot of people they take these lessons and they push them way too far to the extreme and that's where you start seeing people like my friend who give away every single thing he has. And I have trouble explaining to him. I, I tell him this all the time. How are you supposed to care for other people if you don't care for yourself first? It's true. Yeah. Compassion starts at home. Mm-hmm. And caring for everything includes caring for yourself and loving everything means loving for yourself too like you can't like you you corrected me earlier when i said self doesn't exist i what i meant by that is more the identity that we create for ourselves doesn't exist i myself does exist i do have a physical body that needs food and i do have psychological needs that um, emotional needs that need met but my self-identity doesn't exist. And by that, I mean like I could say, well, I'm Dave and Dave only likes rock music. And then anytime I hear a rap song, I'll say, well, Dave doesn't like rap. He only likes rock. That's that self-identity that only likes rock doesn't actually exist. And if I remove that identity from it, I'll find that I enjoy things that are outside of that identity as well. And so I guess what I meant by there's no such thing as self is more the descriptors we use to define our self identity are imaginary. Self is real, but those descriptors aren't. Mm -hmm. And then we find that in, in not knowing in there's infinite possibility. Yeah. 
And that's another thing. Just we're going to have to close it up here because it's starting to go long. But just the infinite unknown, no matter how smart man might think we are, all of man combined doesn't know point zero 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 like just repeating zeros all the way out. We don't. That's the percentage we know uh, of the universe around us. We know absolutely nothing, and chances are that will always be the case. And understanding that is an important part of understanding who we are, why we're here, and why it matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and allowing us to, when we internalize that and we can break down our certainties and, and we allow for new perspectives and, and new ideas and that mm-hmm. openness. Yeah, and it, can, uh, it allows you, it allows you to, to just never see a thing in an absolute and be more open to new ideas and new ways of looking at the world, just basically repeating what you just said, I guess. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, thanks a lot, man. Um, I really appreciate you doing this. Anything else you want to say before we go? No, just again, thanks for having me on. Uh, look forward to next time. All righty, man. Take it easy. All right. Have a good one. All right, guys. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed that chat between Dan and I just now. Uh, I want to clear up a few things, but I, the podcast already went a little long, and I don't want to dump a whole bunch of afterthoughts on you. Just a few quick notes I had while I was going along. Uh, Just first of all, centrism, we talked about it in the beginning. One thing to always keep in mind is everything in moderation, even moderation. Don't use centrism to completely ignore things that are out on the extremes because every now and then you're going to have to head out to the edge because the middle is in the edge. Just I promise it sounds like it contradicts itself. Just think about it. It, It'll make sense eventually, or maybe it won't. Who knows? I also wanted to explain Wu Wei better, but I found myself when I went to record this outro that I was like doubling the length of the podcast trying to do that. So instead, I'll just say if you want to know more about Wu Wei and what we were talking about in that section of the podcast, you can read my essay, Use the Dow Dude. Uh, It's one of my more popular essays, really funny, really lighthearted, gives a full breakdown of the the main core of Taoism. I could never include all of Taoism in just an essay. I could write till the day I die and never write everything there is to write about the Tao. And... I don't know. I wanted to talk more about the Abrahamic religions in this outro too, but the more I think about it, the more I feel like it's just going to be needless time tacked on to the end. You guys got everything that I feel needs to be said. I'm really happy with this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, For now, that's about it. Uh, Have a good one, my dudes. And when you wake up Everything's gonna be fine I guarantee that you wake in a better place And in a better time So you're tired of living And you feel like